0: Welcome back to the Getting Grit Podcast. I am Brad Pohl, your host, and this is where we tell the stories of sinners and saints. Ellen and William Craft traveled in first-class trains, dined with a steamboat captain, and stayed in the best hotels during their escape to Philadelphia and freedom in 1848. Ellen was a Southern slave from mixed parents with very fair skin. She disguised herself as a young man, a white cotton planter traveling with his slave, perpetrated by her husband, William. Their adventures chronicled in their book, Running a Thousand Miles to Freedom. You see, it was worldly expectations that kept people from seeing clearly these slaves who appeared to them in plain sight. <laughs> Ellen and William lived in Georgia. William became a skilled cabinet maker and worked at the shop where he had apprenticed. Ellen, who worked in the main house, was biracial and had frequently been mistaken for a member of her white family. But it was William who came up with the idea for the fair-complexioned Ellen, passing herself off as a wealthy young white man and himself as a slave because it wasn't customary for women to travel with male servants. And their good behavior had classified them as favorite slaves, so the couple had little trouble obtaining passes from their masters. A few days' leave at Christmas time now would give them some days to be missing without raising the alarm. They began their run on December 21st, 1848. Now, Georgia law prohibited teaching slaves to read or write, so Ellen improved on the deception by putting her right arm in a sling, which would prevent others from expecting her to sign registries or papers. And Ellen wrapped bandages around much of her face, giving her reason to limit conversation with strangers. She wore a pair of men's trousers, donned a pair of green spectacles, a top hat, and that completed her disguise. Now, both of them were almost spotted after boarding the first train by people whom they knew through their masters. But funny, the bell clanged and the train began to move on down the tracks. Ellen feigned deafness for the next several hours just to avoid conversations on board. In Savannah, the fugitives boarded a steamer for Charleston, South Carolina. And at breakfast the next morning, the friendly captain marveled at the young master's very attentive slave and warned the disguised Ellen to beware of cutthroat abolitionists in the North who would encourage William to run away. At the best hotel in Charleston, the staff treated Ellen disguised as the ailing slave owner with the utmost care, giving her a fine room and a good table in the dining room. Trying to buy steamer tickets from South Carolina to Philadelphia the next morning, Ellen and William hit a snag when the ticket seller objected to himself having to sign the required names to the tickets after seeing Ellen's badging arm, supposedly injured arm. But miraculously, the steamboat captain happened by and vouched for the young man and his slave and signed their names. A vigilant border patrol in Baltimore detained the disguised pair needing verification of slave ownership. We shan't let you go, the officer said forcefully. But Ellen and William silently prayed, hoping to pass clearly under the path they felt God had nudged them toward. Again, by mysterious intervention, the jangling of the departure bell shattered the awkward silence, and the officer, clearly agitated by it, scratched his head and thought, Man, these people, they just don't look well, and he, he had pity on them. It would be terrible to stop them, he thought. Tell the conductor to let this gentleman and the slave pass, he said. The crafts arrived in Philadelphia the next morning. It was Christmas Day, a hallelujah day, a run to freedom day. There is something beautiful in this story. You see, beauty is something that at first it arrests you, and then it captures you, and finally it sends you on a mission. Think of John's gospel story of Jesus turning water into wine during the wedding at Canaan. The story only tells us that Mary came to Jesus and said, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, O oh woman, what have you to do with me? My hour is not yet come. The authors of the recent production of The Chosen took the liberty to add these four words of Mary in response to Jesus' rebuke. They were, if not now, when? Scripture follows Mary then telling the servants standing by the empty jars, Do whatever he tells you to do. All of us at times stumble and miss the stories of truth that are right before us. Consider in the Hebrews' interpretation of prophecy, there was this great anticipation of the coming Messiah. He would restore the kingdom rules of the world to the Hebrew people. They'd failed to hear the words of God about giving them a new heart, or the words of Isaiah that by his stripes they would be healed right before he was lifted up. And the cloud took him out of their sight at his ascension, described in the book of Acts, his own disciples. After he had taught them for years and performed countless miracles, after he had risen from the dead, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Psy Collette writes, Living each day with his gentleness, his kindness, and his tireless patience, They clung to their desire for how the Messiah should be, because they never stopped imposing their worldly expectations on him. He spent his life revealing to them that God was not what they thought, and they never quite got the picture. Yet he enjoined them not to depart Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. It was worldly expectations that kept people from seeing clearly this Savior of the world who appeared to them in plain sight. He did promise them power. The power that He would give them would be the power of the Holy Spirit, the power to love freely, to serve, to invite, and to persuade as God does, inviting us into freedom. Will you accept this invitation? If not now, when? Let us not forget that Christ was sold for 30 pieces of silver. That was the same price paid for a slave. So that he could be beaten and spit on, lashed with a whip that held barbs of bone and iron to tear the flesh. A wreath of thorns two inches long was forced upon his head and nails driven through his hands and feet just so that he could hang erected on a cross until he died. Why? Because he loved us in spite of our own unlovable natures. And by the sacrifice of his body and blood, we receive his grace and mercy with the power to understand, as St. John Paul II wrote, that we are the Easter people running to freedom and shouting his hallelujah song. Yes. We were once empty jars, just waiting. Now we are filled to the brim. So do whatever he tells you to do, because he is risen in its soul. This is Getting Grit, signing off. Happy Easter, Dominus vobiscum.